Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and our world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here today with my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta, we often talk about care on this podcast, the importance of valuing care, of putting it at the centre of all that we do. And today we're going to take a look at how we can think about care in times of disasters when people really need it and when they need it perhaps more than any other time in their lives. But those times of crisis are often when care is not at the centre. So this is is going to be a fantastic conversation. Absolutely. Sharon, you know, this is an area of interest for me is thinking about how we cope with the, particularly the natural disasters that we know will increase in frequency as the climate changes. And it's a conversation today with two amazing people that I'm really looking forward to. Care is essential to each and every one of us, and it's most essential in times of crisis. People need care if they're going to recover from terrible situations, and we need to care for one another when things go very wrong. In Australia, as, a, as it is around the world, we're seeing an increase in the number of extreme weather events, their intensity and their frequency. Floods, drought, bushfires and wildfires, all becoming more regular. Disasters aren't new to Australia, but they're certainly becoming more frequent and more intense. Without rapid decarbonisation, and in fact even with it, we will see an increase in extreme weather events over the decades ahead, and we know that these have the potential to become more frequent and more disastrous globally. The recent intergenerational report from the Australian Treasury, which we discussed with Liz Allen and Paul Burke back in October, highlights the extent to which extreme weather events will impact Australia in the future. If average global warming is not addressed and is only limited to three degrees Celsius, modelling suggests that in four decades, disaster relief will cost around $130 billion a year in Australia alone. And of course, whilst every one of us will be impacted, it's highly likely that inequality will be deepened and, of course, our planet devastated. All of this is very confronting and can leave us feeling both despairing and disempowered. We need to act urgently to mitigate climate change, but we also need to rethink how we respond when the impacts are felt. So today we'll be talking about natural disasters through a very different lens, the lens of care. We're talking about a wonderful recent collaboration between Australia Remade and Women's Health Goulburn Northeast that explored what it means to be cared for during disaster and what kinds of support communities really need. 
So joining us today, we have two fabulous guests, Millie Rooney, Coordinator of Australia Remade, and Amanda Kelly, CEO of Women's Health Goulburn Northeast, who've been central to this work. So perhaps we could start today by asking each of you to introduce yourselves to our audience. Millie, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks, Anna Greta, and it's so lovely to be here talking about care. So I'm Millie Rooney. I'm a co-director of Australia Remade, and the work that we do there is about how do we link, you know, the country that we want, how do we imagine what might be possible, and then what are the structural changes that have to happen to get us there? I'm a social scientist. I really love talking to people and listening to what's important to them. Uh, And I'm a carer for my partner who's unwell and for my community. And I I always want to say that bit because I really just like to kind of claim that as valid work, even though it's not the bit on my CV. And and Amanda, could you introduce yourself to our audience? I certainly can, Anna Greta. Thank you very much. It's It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'm Amanda Kelly. I'm the CEO of Women's Health Goulburn Northeast. We're one of 12 women's health services funded by the State Government of Victoria and our role is in health promotion and primary prevention. So effectively what we look at is what are the conditions that we need for uh, women and by extension our community uh, to live their best lives essentially. We look at the social determinants of health, we look at how what's happening in our communities, we uh, try to understand the needs of our communities on all those different levels of the social determinants, we advocate for policy change, we work with stakeholders in our region to to try to improve the conditions that we have. So one of the lovely things is we work, this work with Australia Remade is so beautiful because as Millie said, Australia Remade thinks about what is the country that we would like to live in. And for us, that's the fundamental thing that we want. Um, so we're regionally based in Victoria. Um, we cover about a fifth of the state and uh, very diverse communities, diverse landscapes. And it's a really, um, it's a really fantastic many community I was going to say community but we have many communities so it's lovely to work so closely with them. Welcome to both of you. If there are two themes that I think run through the conversations that we have here on the podcast and that Anna Greta and I talk about a lot it's it's reimagining what our future could be and care so this is a conversation that we are very (laughs) excited about so so thank you so much for joining us. Millie, today we we do want to talk just a little later about that amazing work that Australia Remade and Women's Health Goulburn Northeast has been doing around care and natural disasters. But just to set the scene, can we go back to some previous work that Australia Remade did around the things that really matter to people, that work that you did around the public good? And there you identified three C's of care, connection and contribution. Can you just talk us through those conversations you had and how people talked about those three C's? Yeah, so it was really fascinating. We we went out and we asked people from very diverse backgrounds, you know, culturally, politically, geographically, you know, what is it that you want for you and your communities? And really quickly, in the first sort of five minutes, we'd hear, you know, Housing, healthcare, jobs, education, access to the internet, access to nature, really quickly, you know, the basic things you need to, to survive and live a good life. But then we, we heard this shift as people said, well, 
actually what we really want for our communities is we want to be connected to people and place. We want to care and be cared for. And importantly there, it's both. It's the act of caring and the act of receiving that care. And we want to contribute both locally and nationally. And so although there's all of these sort of, um, you know, things like housing and that's really important, ultimately it was these bigger concepts of how we want our communities to feel and come together and what it means to be a part of them. It's still, that's a report, I think I talked about it today in some meetings I had uh, with health-related policy work uh, in Sydney. Uh, such, such an extraordinarily important document. Amanda, let's understand a little bit about the work that uh, Women's Health Goulburn Northeast does and particularly the way that CARE might influence the work that's being done. I think you've alluded to that already when you introduced yourself. But take us through how CARE works in the, in the communities that you're part of. Care's are such an underrated thing. It, it, it is undervalued. It's underrepresented in, in the way that we work. And the more that I work in this space of primary prevention, the more that I understand that we, we need to have care at the centre of everything that we do. And so the work that we the work that we do at Women's Health Goulburn Northeast, um, we're moving further and further towards centering care in in each of those things, um, each of those areas that we look at. So I I can see I can hear the care that's in the work that you're doing, and particularly when we're thinking about primary prevention and we're working on uh, the the challenges that we see in association with the social determinants of health and and health outcomes. Maybe you could take us through some of the examples in practice, the communities that you're working with um, and times where CARE has really focused the work that your organisation does. I think that the focus of CARE is really an emerging one for us and what we've seen is we've observed communities caring. So through the numerous disasters that have occurred in our region. So, you know, we've had been very strongly impacted by the the noughties drought. Then we've had flood. Um, We've also had plague. Um, We've also had fires. We've also had, uh, like everyone else, been impacted by COVID. And one of the key things that we saw was community stepping up and supporting each other. And so as a government-funded organisation looking into health promotion and primary prevention, we've been tasked by the government and essentially by the community to look to improve conditions. But one of the things that's really important is not to impose that because what I see through our communities is the capacity and the ability and the willingness to care in the communities. So by bringing in policies or bringing in programs and projects and saying, well, this is how things need to be done or this is what we've been funded to do, we're imposing that and that can actually break the care cycle at times. And so because people have to change the way they're doing things, so they're not necessarily looking at what's really needed on the ground. So one of the pieces of work that we've done is developed a community engagement framework within our organisation that says we're here not to tell people what to do, not to tell them how to improve their lives, but to ask them what they need and listen and then see how we can advocate or supply what is what is requested. And sometimes what's requested is 
to be listened to. Um, other times it is to draw out from people. They have something they really need to say that they know is not working. And so we work with them to see how do we represent that to whether it's a health service, whether it's the local uh, local community service, whether it's the sporting club, um, whether it's local government, whether it's their the state government or federally, how do we represent that, and how do we um, how do we speak um, not uh, not instead of, but on behalf of? How do we elevate the voices of our community? So some of those things that we do in a practical sense are we have training programs, for example, that give people basics around concepts that might be um, understanding gender-based violence, understanding sexual and reproductive health and how that impacts them, and then providing spaces for facilitated conversations so that we can hear what people have to say and then taking that back and feeding that baby back into an organisation to improve policy in the organisation or practice. So it's a complex web, I guess. It's sometimes hard to describe exactly what it is because it isn't, we don't go in and go, here's a program, we're going to deliver it and then evaluate it. It's a lot of building of relationships uh, working on understanding and hearing and through that care is at the forefront. Can I jump in as well there because I think actually one of the conversations you and I have had before Amanda is that part of what it seems to me that you do is say care is a collective activity it's something that we have to do as a collective at a systems level Often we talk, and particularly when we're talking about women's health, not as an organisational thing, but as a concept, it's it's the bubble bath, it's the like calm down your hysteria, it's the, whereas the work that you're talking about is saying, what do we need to do together to give ourselves the conditions for care to be seen as a strength, as an infrastructure and as a, a kind of practice that is not just individualised. So I've seen that in how you work. Thanks, I'm really, I really love that uh, care is a collective activity and I hear it through Amanda's description of the work that's being done. Amanda, I'm wondering about the messiness of different communities in different places at different times and I know the area that you cover in Victoria is a heterogeneous one. There's lots of different forms of community. How do you tailor make your listening? How do you tailor make your engagement to really care and to, to highlight, I guess, the strengths of particular communities? We look at it, it's a very broad region physically there's a lot of space to cover as well as as you've said Anna Greta a, a large number of different communities there so we're unable to speak to everybody all the time and we what we need to do is under there's some basics that we understand so for example we right across our region access to healthcare is difficult it's it's not as good as it could be there's some fantastic healthcare there but people may not be able to physically access it or may not know how to access it. So we know those are some of the basics. But what we then do is go into specific communities and drill down. So that community may be a town, it may be a cohort of people, and we go in and we have those really crunchy conversations with them that, um, that are able to draw out the specific nuances of what they need in that community and then we take that back up and and look at it across our region and advocate in that specific space for that particular community. 
it's a lovely model of, of kind of bottom up and top down of, of people coming together to talk about what are clearly complex issues or very often complex issues in ways that are really meaningful to people and, and can bring about change. And, and Millie, I wanted to, to come back to the comment you made about care as a collective activity and, and kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, we, we often think about care as formal institutions, you know, as hospitals, childcare facilities, aged care homes that provide support for people when they're not able to, to look after themselves. And there are moments in our lives when we all need that care. But we also hear about the care economy, which sometimes encaptures paid work, but sometimes unpaid work. But of course, fundamentally, care is, is deeply human about the way we give and receive care to those that we value in our lives. Talk us through a little bit more about how Australia Remade thinks about care. Is it both formal and informal? Is it both paid and unpaid? How does this idea of care as a collective activity play out? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot because I think, you know, care is both. It is formal, it is paid, uh, and that's wonderful. You know, that's great that it's paid. In fact, it's not paid enough in many instances, you know, childcare, nursing, et cetera. They're, They're very underpaid care professions. It's also informal. You know, the care that you provide to your family or your extended family, there's this lovely concept in a book called The Care Manifesto, and they talk about promiscuous care, which is care beyond the immediate family, care for people that you, you know, may or may not be expected to care for. And and that kind of care you can't pay for. You know, you think about, oh, I'm going to care for my neighbours, they're going to need a bit of an emotional support, but they're not going to turn, you're not going to turn up at their door, hand them a, you know, homemade fruitcake and be like, that'll be 50 bucks, you know, thanks, there's my active care. You know, it works because it is it is not transactional. Um, and I've been thinking a lot recently about, so there's the informal, there's the formal, but we then tend to disregard the informal as as we just like, well, that just automatically happens, right? Like it, it just sort of magically, you know, usually because women are magicking up something. But so then what's the like capacity we have collectively for care or what's the infrastructure? And a, a really personal example, um, while we were finishing this Care Through Disaster report, the final week, uh, we had one of the co- one of my colleagues was sick. I think her kids were sick. So she was like trying to juggle her care work. I had just taken um, an elderly friend to hospital and actually she died recently and the care that I was able to give her through that time, the nurses were fantastic, but as a non-blood relative that I was able to give her was only made possible because I work four days a week, I have a flexible job, I've deliberately set my life up to have that capacity to care beyond the immediate four walls of my family. And so, so much of the work at Australia Remade that we've been doing is like, what are the conditions for care? What are the infrastructure for care? That it shouldn't just be a privilege that I have to care for members of my community. It should be something we all have access to do, to care and be cared for. So how we think about those conditions for care and how we say, this is real stuff. This is not just the frilly bits. Like, this is the work. Yeah. Millie, I've heard you talk about the infrastructure of care a few times and every time I hear you talking like this, I think how important the framing is. It's an extraordinary way for us to really conceptualise care and the role that it has in our community. Amanda, I'd love to come to the collaboration. You've both recently been involved in that wonderful collaboration. It's called Care Through Disaster. Why did Women's Health Goulburn North East want to be involved in that collaboration? 
We've been looking at the impact that one's gender has on your ability to prepare for, live through and recover from disaster for over, well, almost 14 years now after the 2009 bushfires. And particularly, we were looking at the increase of gender-based violence after, particularly after disasters, and we see a marked increase there. And so this work has, has, I guess, evolved. There's been quite a bit of research done in this area. And what we've started to understand, and this has actually been working with Australia Remade, we were one of the pilot organisations that talked with um, Millie in her research around the public good. And we started to think about it's there are actions that we can take, there are there are steps that we can take to mitigate the impact of disaster on us and particularly when looking at it through a gendered lens. And care kept coming up continually for us. And one in fact, one of my staff said, but what if we centered care through all of this work? She's, you know, she said we we think about disasters often as you know, they're very, we need to be efficient. We need to save lives. We need to make sure that people have a roof over their head. They have water, they have food, their animals are cared for. These are really important things. And absolutely, we need to do all of those things. But when we get into that very efficient and effective mode, care and everything else drops through. And that, in fact, exacerbates a lot of the negative things and our negative, the negative impacts of disasters, not only our physical well-being, but our mental and emotional well-being as well. So if we centre care, we can think about reducing the impacts on women, gender diverse people and the whole of our community. So really this, this came about because of those, because of the body of work that our organisation had, and then it's um, evolved through the conversations with Australia Remade and thinking about care as a guiding principle for us. Wow, it's such an extraordinary way for us to begin a conversation about natural disasters and the way in which they impact on lives, on communities. We're going to take a really short break here and we'll be back in just one moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We are talking today about natural disasters, particularly thinking about the challenge of climate change in our future and taking into this the prism of care 
as an approach to preserving and protecting and helping communities as they go through extraordinary events, particularly in natural disasters. Before the break, we were talking about the importance of care and its centrality in what it means to be human. So I thought perhaps we might turn now to thinking about care in that context of natural disasters. And Millie, I'd love to start with you asking about how care has traditionally been in the response to natural disasters in, in things like the bushfire events of Black Saturday in Victoria or in other large events that have taken place in Australia. Is, is care something that we see in our response historically? Oh, I mean, yes, of course, you know, that you think about the the outpouring of community care of, you know, can I take your horses? Do you need a place to sleep? Uh, let me fight this fire. You know, you think about the the firefighters on the front lines for days, for weeks, for months, like that is an extraordinary act of care. And I, I think what's, there's sort of two interesting things for me in this. One is that Care is there. You know, people, communities are caring for each other in an extraordinary way. I don't think they're being supported enough. So that's one thing. Um, Whether that's the kind of um, and not enough fire safety equipment. I know we heard stories of people saying we didn't have up-to-date masks. Um, You know, the fire trucks were old, all of those sorts of things. Uh, Or whether it's support for different types of care. The second thing is that I think so often a lot of the work that happens during disaster is a bit invisible you know it's much easier to fund a fire truck and say oh we need the fire truck than it is to say oh yeah the time it took somebody to alert the phone tree think about who's got what disability or you've got three kids and not enough you know we're going to move you here but you're going to need this like a lot of that work a lot of the informal stuff the informal care work Um, again, is just not supported enough. So I I think the care is always there. It's often not seen as legitimate work to the extent that it is being resources. And I know Amanda could probably talk a bit more to that that gendered lens of it. Um, But, I mean, care is there, whether it's got the support or not. Yeah. Amanda, you mentioned earlier that your parts of your community were affected by Black Saturday, that devastating bushfire event that occurred in Victoria in 2009. What are your reflections of the role that care played in that disaster and in how communities recovered? I think that one of the things that was reflected back to me by the community as we've talked about this, and we've seen it again with the 2019 fires as well, is that as Millie said, it's absolutely right. People care. People have people have shown amazing support. And what happens is that after after the people's ability to care and sometimes even be cared for drops enormously because of the stresses and the difficulties. And so sometimes it's very difficult to say what is needed. It's sometimes very difficult to say how you can be cared for. And usually within 12 months or so, a lot of the infrastructure supports drop away. And so it becomes up to the community to to 
build back the networks and the ways of caring that they've had before, but everything's changed. Quite literally, the landscape has changed. Quite literally, the community has changed. Sometimes there's death. Sometimes there are people moving away. Sometimes there's new people moving in. Sometimes there are workers that have come in to support the community. So those infrastructure that are not buildings, that community infrastructure shifts and changes. And so it can be very difficult to continue to care in the way that people need to. And it's not through unwillingness, it's through sheer exhaustion and sheer lack of value of this. And and it's it really what Millie was talking about earlier was that care isn't valued and it's often, again, as Millie said, fluffy and seen as fluffy work. And what does that often relate to and, and correlate with is is often women's work. And so we know that our firefighters often are men. They come out and they do these amazing, you know, these amazing pieces of work for us and keeping our community safe. But once it's over, they're left to pick up the pieces themselves and often women are part of that. And so it's not seen, it's not valued, it's not thought about. It's, you know, it's, it's, we're rebuilding infrastructure, but what the community needs is time to heal and rebuild. And with our, what we've seen is successive disasters, it makes it very difficult to rebuild back again. And I, I think adding into that, Amanda, is that your point about the efficiency and the crisis it comes in you do the efficient things you do the the moment of crisis how many people can we get out how many much food can we get in but we have to I think our research has shown that we have to start thinking about disaster preparation and response on a much longer time frame and so you know the idea of care allows for complexity if you put a care lens on it you've got a complexity lens and it means you can say actually the work that we did three years ago the coffees we had, you know, the picnics we had, uh, the volunteering at the library, all of that enables us to better care in that moment of disaster. And in fact, it saves lives. It's not just that we feel better in it. It means that information travels faster. It means we know who needs help. We know who needs rescue. We know who needs whatever support. So, I, you know, starting early in that kind of disaster prep and then as Amanda was saying the year after we still need that support to do the care because that's one it's just better people feel better but two it lays the groundwork for the next response so starting to think you know there's an amazing stat of something like only three percent of government funding goes to preparation the rest is all on cleanup in disaster like that seems to me like a really false economy. And so, and and presumably most of that is actually on that kind of physical stuff. So what does it look like if we if we think about disaster and care on a really different time scale? Yeah. I think that idea of prevention is just so important. And of course, as natural disasters become more and more frequent, prevention becomes an essential part of the process and that idea of spending the time not just to respond but to build strong and supportive communities and build the ability to be able to care for one another and respond is is just so important. But as I was listening to, to both of you talking, I was reflecting back to comments that you made before the break, Amanda, about listening um, and 
many years ago, I worked in international development as a gender advisor. And one of the conversations we would often have was around the importance of thinking about gender in context of disaster response. And there was always a view that we don't have time. This is an emergency. We don't have time for all of that. But of course, we gender advisors were saying, this is exactly the time. This is critical. And I was reflecting on that, Amanda, and thinking about what you said about listening. I think in the midst of a disaster, we often think we don't have time to listen. We have to just act. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, um, Amanda and Millie, you might like to add to this, on, on whether or not it's important to listen during disasters as well as before and after. I think, Sharon, sometimes people think about the disaster as the moment that the thing happens. And in fact, the disaster is, is can be years long. <laughs> and so it's not about in this moment, we do need to do, we, of course, we need to get someone out of the way of the fire and we need to do that work. But, you know, when I think about refuge centres, for example, and we've seen this in the research and I've heard this anecdotally as well and seen it for myself in refuge centres, you know, we, we have people coming in there that this is supposed to be a safe place, but for them it isn't safe. They may be they may be living with a disability and unable to go into that centre. They may be um, someone who's in a same-sex relationship and really uncomfortable going into a space to sleep where there may be people who don't respect them and, in fact, um, have had really difficult uh, interactions with them in the past. And there are a number of different scenarios that we can look at. So the listening needs to happen well before the disaster. It, it needs to happen and it needs to happen in, there is in the moment. And what what it does, if we've done that listening in in the lead up to, it's easier to listen in the heat of the moment because we have that relationship and we have that understanding that not everybody needs exactly the same thing in this moment. And I can hear that your need is different. I may not be able to respond right in this very moment, but I hear you and I can support you as we go into the next moment. So, and then as we are coming out of the disaster and or the immediate disaster and the immediate issue, then we can continue to listen. So we need as many different voices as possible in the space and we need to value them, <laughs> I think is, is the key part. Valuing connection, valuing contribution, valuing care. Millie, that was the three C's of the public good report that you wrote. And with this report, there are three three uh, matching uh, S's. S's this That's time. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, I was just take us through the S's. What are the three S's? So, so what we heard from people, there's sort of two parts of the report. There's the the kind of really clear bit about what we heard, and then we've put it in a bigger context. And the the three really clear things that were people need to be seen, they need to be safe, and they need to be supported. And this, you know, the scene really speaks to that to what Amanda was talking about, listening, you know, listening, seeing, hearing, you know, however you want to talk about it. 
we heard that people really needed to be seen and they needed to be seen by each other. Like that's part of that community connection. They needed to know who their neighbours were. They needed to know, you know, who was in the community who might need help and who could help them, but also to be seen by service providers and to be seen for what their needs were and also what they had to offer. So, you know, we heard conversations about, uh, people saying, you know, well, we were a local firefighting unit and then the blow-ins from the city came and we weren't listened to when we said, oh, we reckon the fire is going to go like this. So there's like a knowledge being seen there. And also being seen like places, that was the other thing. So as Amanda was saying, you know, an evacuation centre isn't necessarily safe for everyone. There's real fears of risk of, of violence, at, um, both physical and kind of psychological. And that if people don't know those places, they won't necessarily go there. So people will put themselves physically at risk because they don't know a place or they'll they'll go to the closest place that's familiar but not actually the safest. So scene was really important. I mean, that links really strongly to safe. People needed to be safe in all of those ways and then supported. You know, people need support to do this work, whether, like I was saying before, whether it's, you know, safety masks, whether it's community events, whether it's cleanups and mental health afterwards, that they're really key. And I think for any policymakers, just thinking through, are people being seen? Is it keeping them safe? And are they supported? And it's one thing to look, it's another thing to see. You know, it's one thing to listen, it's another thing to hear. And that that is really part of it. And then the other piece, as you were talking, Amanda, that I was thinking is the work that happens informally. So I, I think actually, Amanda, you gave me this example, but, you know, community that had after the fires, they ran a community event where they, I think, took people away for respite for a few days. Government thought this was a great idea, came in, said, we're taking you all for respite and no one went on it because it, it wasn't personal, it wasn't embedded. And think about all the informal care work that happens after a disaster. But think about also, okay, a disaster's struck. You've got your house that you're trying to do the cleanup. You don't know how to, like the kids have got to go to school, but you're at home and the school's not really there. And like you're individually kind of under attack from the recovery process. So what if what if we change things and said actually, you know, big ideas, but what if we had a universal basic income or a universal disaster recovery thing? So we had a buffer capacity so that after a disaster, I don't have to go and work 5 days a week. Maybe I'm working 3 days a week paid and the rest of the time I'm listening. You know, maybe I'm listening to what the community needs or maybe I'm listening to my neighbor who's just upset so how do we build these like how do we build structures that give us buffering capacity to get our chainsaw ticket or you know before the disaster and then put it into practice after I think is really key to that that listening you know it's that relational dance I think this is so incredibly important really about how governments with our license start to think differently about how they respond to disasters and how they can put care at the centre. And I'd love to just tease this out a little bit more. I mean, you mentioned, you know, should there be a, a universal basic income or a, a, a universal disaster response income or supplement that can really support people so we take away that pressing need for survival 
in terms of putting food on the table to allow people to recover in the way they need and to support one another. I'd, I'd love to just ask you to, to perhaps reflect a little bit more on the kinds of things that governments need to do, and this might be from local government all the way through to the federal government, to really respond differently, to think differently about how people need to be supported before, during and after disasters. Yeah, look, I'm going to talk high level because I think, you know, there's lots of things, local government, state government and kind of individual policies. But I want to think about like, what could we do to change the context in which this happens where care is really at the heart? I think it's also about thinking, what are the policies or things that we are doing that bring us together? rather than what are the things that we're implementing that fragment us. Because we know from our work and lots of other work that like strong communities are much better place to go through this stuff. So a couple of examples, I think, you know, paid disaster leave in some form. Um, I know a lot of public servants get paid disaster leave. It's quite tied to, you know, the Red Cross or, or certain types of, of disaster response and care. Nothing wrong with any of that, but it, it is a bit more rigid than I think I would like to see. And a little bit of caution, there's quite a few uh, larger corporations also offering that kind of leave. Um, interestingly, they're some of the major financial institutions that are funding uh, fossil fuel investment. So it's a, like a little bit of a glitch going on there of like, we'll pay for some people to have leave to tidy up, but we'll actually contribute to the disaster in the first place. So on top of that is that do we want to live in a society that says you can have leave to recover from a disaster if your personal job conditions are good enough? If you're just someone at a supermarket working at a supermarket, well, you don't get the paid disaster leave. So what are we doing at a big level that's actually fragmenting us and creating inequality? So I think some kind of universal disaster leave, disaster pay response um, is really important. Um I think the way we think about insurance is really problematic as well here of insurance is this like way of individualizing risk. It fragments us, you know, in within six years, I think the climate council has said um, 25, I think it's one in 25 houses will be uninsurable. So that means if you're not wealthy enough or can't move you, your house, you, you know, lose everything, inequality exacerbates, therefore not just the person who isn't insured, but our whole social fabric starts to rip, which means all of us are more vulnerable. So again, like what is our universal response? We're not there yet, but that path potentially leads us down the path of private firefighting services, which we've seen in the US, which insurance companies are also running as a way of, you know, making extra profit, Go, get insured with us, buy our firefighter army, um, and you'll be all right. So I think this is, we're not there yet, but being aware of where are our bigger offerings actually fragmenting ourselves. And then the kind of final bit of that is, we heard quite a lot about how communities were, uh, you know, they come together in this moment. Rebecca Solnit says, you know, disaster is the portal to paradise. Um, but we also then heard that people saying, yeah, but we're having to compete against each other for grants and funding and recovery. Some people have it, some people don't. And that, again, is is kind of creating rips. So where I think we need to go with kind of government or policy response is like, what is our universal response that says every single one of us is worthy of being cared for after a disaster? It doesn't matter whether you have a high paying job, whether you live in an insurable area, like how are we 
responding together. So I think, again, universal basic income, paid disaster leave, four-day work week. Um, and, and the thing that is exciting about these things is we don't have to wait for disaster to be the portal to paradise. Like, actually, what we know from this work is paradise reduces the impact of disaster. Like, we can have paradise first, you know, if this is not a oh, we have to spend all this money on disasters so we can't have nice things. Like the nice things are the things that stop the disaster. So I think there's a real opportunity for a really big collective push towards that kind of thing. Paradise without disaster is far more appealing than paradise lead, or from disaster, disaster leading to, to paradise. Yeah. And really there's so much in what you said I think that is, is just fundamentally about rethinking what makes better, more supportive communities. But I think that point you made about insurance is particularly important. We need to be thinking very, very deeply about what we are prepared to allow private actors to profit economically and materially from and and that's absolutely fundamental because if we don't challenge what is profitable for for private sector actors then we will necessarily entrench inequality when we're thinking about how to respond to and how to prevent you know, the, the the kinds of issues we're talking about but but Amanda I wonder if you just wanted to add you know your work is sort of grounded in communities and, and very local is there something you'd like to add around local responses and what local governments need to be doing yeah Millie could we have that now please <laughs> things I would like that right now a very wise colleague of mine said if you know one regional town you know one regional town so I think that for me, we need to ensure that we have the flexibility and all of those things that Millie has talked about will provide us with the flexibility so that this town of 50 people who are dispersed over hundreds of kilometres on their different properties or this town of 25,000 people where a lot of people live within the town itself, you know, they have the flexibility to be able to see what their community needs. When I think about the diversity of the communities across my region, I mean, it's it's a bit mind-blowing to think quite how different some of them are and the needs that they have. So um, it's that structural change that we need to support that. And I think that local government can certainly, and many of them are, they, they are in touch with their community. They understand what the stresses are for their communities. Unfortunately, for a lot of them, they are quite resource deficient. They just don't have a lot of capacity. And so we really need to push it up and to the state and federal government to look at those broader issues. And those are the things that are going to make the difference. In the shorter term, um, while we're working on, you know, dismantling capitalism and, you know, sorting out gender inequity, um, in the meantime, what we can look at is for our governments who have pots of money sitting there for after the disasters, let's look at setting up some of these care infrastructures beforehand. So those are things like providing funding to support communities to set up 
coffee groups and to set up to fund those the CWA to fund the sporting clubs to fund whoever of those the girl guides you know whoever of those organizations are who are rooted in the community to foster those connections in a way that means that they're not going out and fundraising from the very community that they're trying to support to then support the community let's look at ways that we can build that and and you know in our in our community i guess in our world we money is is one of the things that we use to measure value and a small amount of money really can support a community um, and show that they are cared for and each community can decide for itself what it needs Look, it's such an extraordinary way to think, I think, as particularly as we go into another interesting, challenging, difficult summer, uh, to really frame our disaster preparation, uh, our disaster experience and our disaster recovery through this prism of care uh, is, I think, has the potential to be transformative. I think I could talk about this for quite a lot longer, but we are going to bring it to water close. And the last question I have for both of you is asking, what would Australia look like? if care was at the centre of policy and decision-making, and particularly at the centre of communities. And Amanda, I think you've begun to touch on it, but what would it look like if we achieved this? Well, I think Rebecca Solnit said we have paradise, but I think that what it would look like is we would have communities, and I'm not going to use the word resilient. Um, I think that that's a word that's very overused and, and is there to indicate, well, we'll just keep chucking stuff at you until you break, really, and then, oh, look, you're not resilient anymore. So I think that what it would look like is that we have communities that are well-resourced to support each other in day-to-day life, where we have space and time to connect with each other in our local communities and to hear about what's important to each other and what each other values in our lives and how we would like to live our lives so that when something happens that we need support, there are people out there looking for us. Millie, what would it look like in Australia if care was at the centre of policy and decision-making? Oh, it would be so relaxing, wouldn't it? Like we could just have a cup of tea and switch off for a while. Look, I I think, you know, it comes back to for me those three C's of we'd been we'd be cared and we'd be able to care and be cared for, we'd be connected and we'd be able to contribute. But what that would look like is, you know, we'd be safe. First of all, we'd feel safe. We'd know that disaster is going to happen. We live in a world that's going to happen. But we'd be like, yeah, you know, government has our backs. We are doing everything we can to stop disaster at a scale that that is is you know traumatic and devastating. So we're in this together, honestly and truly. So we'd first of all feel relaxed. And then I think daily life would look like, you know, people probably want to work three or four days a week where they feel this kind of very direct sense of what contribution is, and that'd be nice. And then We'd have a day, your kids might still be at school and then maybe on that day you might paint for a day or play the saxophone if you like the saxophone or have a cup of tea with your friends, paint your garden, do something, laugh about something, sing about something, do something that isn't pressured and productive. And then maybe you'd do your chainsaw ticket because it's nice to feel practical. Um, so we would have this time. I think I think if care was at the centre, we would have time to be human, to be with people as they die. 
And then in that moment of disaster, we could say, okay, I've still got some, you know, pretty key responsibilities that I can't get rid of, but maybe I won't paint today. Maybe I'll get the chainsaw and I'll, you know, help cut down the trees or I'll get someone in a dinghy or I'll fight the fires. So we would have, I think, if care was at the centre, I think we could breathe. I think we would have an expansiveness that that would bring us life and I don't think it's that hard. I really don't think it's that hard if we decided we wanted it. Millie, I can't imagine a better place to leave it. If care was at the centre, I think we could breathe. What an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Millie Rooney and Amanda Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sharon, we've been looking forward to this conversation for such a long time and it was so good to have Millie Rooney back with us again. She's been a regular on the podcast over the years and to have Amanda Kelly with her bringing that extraordinary work that's been done uh, in rural and regional Victoria. I spend some time thinking about disaster resilience, particularly in the work that I do in health and climate change. And this report that's been produced through Australia Remade offers an extraordinary opportunity for really thinking deeply about how we prepare, about how we create resilience, both physical structures, but most importantly, listening to Millie talk about the infrastructure of care, to think about the value of care to think about deeply the way that the glue of human connection, those messy human relationships that occur in places, are perhaps the most valuable resource we have. And they're resources that we can, of course, invest in well in advance of any disaster. And if the disasters don't happen, then we haven't lost anything. And if they do happen, then we're much better prepared. And there's some really extraordinary research that sits behind this. I know when we're thinking disaster resilience, we're often thinking about backburning and preparing to decrease the risk of fire coming up to physical structures. And I love the way that the two of them have really rethought the experience of disaster through that human lens of connection and the way that we care for each other and care for place, the way in which we can make a contribution to our communities. But what were your thoughts? I really love that conversation. And we've talked to Millie a few times before on the podcast, although not this year, I think. And I always enjoy listening to Millie. And it was a delight to hear from Amanda as well. What I really liked about that conversation, Anna Greta, was the optimism. You know, we're talking about really challenging issues. But Millie and Amanda were providing us with new ways of thinking, new ways of doing. And as Millie said towards the end, we can do this. It's probably not that hard. It's about what we prioritise and what we value. And I think that is such an important message, particularly after what has been a a fairly challenging year with the voice referendum, with the cost of living crisis, with the challenges we're seeing around the world, you know, deep conflict, deep pain. You know, here we have... A, a message of optimism, and I think that is worth holding on to. And the work that Amanda and Millie have done around those three S's, I think, are so important. And those S's of being seen, being safe, and being supported apply to us in, as human beings in disaster contexts, but also in our everyday lives. You know, I think about the work that I do, do with children and their families who are experiencing poverty. Not being seen is often the most painful part of that and not feeling safe is is such a terrible thing for people to experience. So those three S's give us hope, they give us optimism, they give us a roadmap to how we can rethink what really matters and, and how we can value care. Mm. Listening, kindness, the messiness of human connection. 
Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. We'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed today on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about our podcast. And and we hope everyone loved this episode. This was such a great conversation. We do love hearing from you, our audience, so reach out to us on Twitter or X at ANU Crawford or connect with us through our Crawford LinkedIn page or flick us an email at policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. Our thanks as always to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. <laughs>